want to share with you some of my, my journey over the past couple years, my story. Um, back in July, we did a vision talk, and typically you only do one of those a year, but I think we need to do this, especially talking about this issue, quite a bit more regularly until it takes hold in our hearts. And so we're going to talk about it probably every three months for a while. And uh, Jim's going to come around pass out both the sermon notes and then a... Uh, a card, and both of those are important. So, uh, a place for you to take notes as we go through the sermon this morning, and hold on to that card. That'll become evident towards the end of our time this morning. But I started sharing with you some of our heart and how God has been working and changing the way we think as a church. And I want to I want to share with you more of that journey and just kind of break into that uh, little pieces of that and and what God is doing there. Um, our desire is, is not to grow the church by numbers. That is not our heart at all. If God does that, we want Him to do that, but we want Him to do that through our lives being transformed, becoming disciples, becoming followers of Jesus Christ, having our lives transformed into the image and the likeness of a son, Jesus Christ, and that through our lives, people become exposed to the gospel, and then the way we live and the way we love will become ways for people to come into the community of Christ through our church. But we are not going to participate any longer in those tactics that, that try to attract large crowds to our church for the sake of our own vanity and our own ability to brag about how we are and who we are as a church. The most important thing for me, the most important thing for us is life transformation, that God actually changes who we are. Now, that's kind of a short summary of it. We're going to get into it just a little bit more this morning. But I want to share a scripture to kind of paint our time in an illustration. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and reveal them to little children. That's why I get to speak to you, because I'm not the wise and intelligent one. I... Believe what God says here. Yes, Father, for this was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal Him. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son decides to reveal Him. That means we can know the Father. And this famous verse, come to me. Jesus says, come to me. Picture the setting, picture the context of that phrase, come to me. He's talking to people who had been carrying the burden and the yoke of religious slavery put on them by the religious leaders, by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And he says to them who have been carrying this weight, this burden, he says to them, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's a great verse, but we shouldn't stop there. I think too often we stop there. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and my load is not hard to carry. Oh, man. Anyone know what this is? It's a yoke. Part of one, anyway. It's not light, either. You've probably seen some smaller ones of these. The, the typical one that's still kind of around these days is wood, and it's about half this size, maybe, maybe here to here. And, uh, and it's got, this one's missing the, the connection here. There's usually a loop right here. And that, that's what goes back to the, uh, the person running the team. So the person running the team would have a connection, and that would kind of go back there, and they would, they would call commands and so on and so forth. And that was... Get this to look like it's supposed to. Probably not. But... Um, we don't use these anymore in farming. We have tractors now. We don't need horses. This was probably for a team of horses. Um, could have been for a team of great big oxen, which is just cows, by the way, if you don't know what that is. Um, they would use cows. They were able to train cows to do the work. But it's probably for a big pair of, of work horses. You know, the big, like the Clydesdales. And so they'd kind of hitch them up together in pairs. And, uh, and they would work together as a team to do things. And, and uh, this is a yoke. So this is what we're talking about this morning. It's interesting to think about this picture, if we get a picture. So there'd be two, two animals, you know, two horses, two oxen that would work together. And um, I don't know if you've heard me tell this story, but there was back in, back in olden times when they would do mule competitions, this was before they did tractor pulls and all that kind of thing, that they had, they had mule competitions and they would have mules and see how much a mule could pull. And so, you know, I think in this particular competition, it was something like uh, the, the winning mule pulled um, like 5,000 pounds and then the runner-up pulled 4,000 pounds, something along those lines. And they had the idea at this competition to hitch the two together using what we see before us, a yoke, put them together as a team and see how much they could pull as a team. Our assumption would be that they could probably pull 10,000 pounds, right? Maybe, maybe between 9 and 10,000 pounds because one pulled 5,000, one pulled 4,000. And so they could probably, as a team, pull about 10,000 pounds. Well, as a team, they didn't pull nine or 10,000 pounds together, not even 12,000 pounds, they pulled 15,000 pounds together. When they were partnered up with another participant, they were able to do much more than they could do on their own. Take my yoke on you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear my load is not hard to carry. Keep that picture in mind, if you will, as we go throughout this morning. Um, 
So I want to share with you kind of part of my story. I haven't really shared this in great detail. I'm not going to get into all the details. It would take too long. But uh, probably a lot of you have observed this, and uh, so might as well pay attention to it and, and, and draw attention to it so God can use it. But um, if you've been around here for a little while, you know there was a period of time probably about two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, where I was tired. And I don't know if you observed that, but I was tired. And I might, you might even say that, uh, that I was burnt out. Anyone notice that? You're not going to offend me. Some of you haven't been around here that long, so you can't have noticed it. But, but I was tired. I was, I, I, had, I was spent. That was probably a good way to, a good, a good way to put it. I or we, we had made some decisions for our church that didn't quite pan out like we thought they would, and they ended up costing our church a lot, not just financially, but in uh, momentum. And uh, over the period of the first probably three years of being here, we had tried several things because we've always been passionate about making disciples, and we tried a few things, and, and none of them just really worked like we wanted them to work. They didn't have a great impact, and so it kind of felt like okay, uh, nothing we're doing is working. About that same period of time, I was, I was being pressed on uh, with, with uh, some people that had ideologies that weren't quite as similar as mine. I was being pressured. Some had good and best intentions for, uh, for me and for our church. Others who didn't, they had entirely different intentions. And it was actually right in the middle of this time that there was a, felt like a car thrown at me on my way home from work one night. And, uh, and it just felt like I was kind of being pressed on every side, if you've ever been in that situation. And I was tired. Been working hard for, you know, years, and, and it's hard when you do work for years, and it doesn't really seem like it's paying off. And yet during that time, I, you know, I probably prayed for God to set me free, to release me, <laughs> but God just wouldn't let me quit, and uh, it was quite the opposite. I felt just a strong call to being here, to what God wanted me to do here, what God wanted to use and accomplish through me as I ever had, in fact, still do today, probably even as stronger, stronger than ever. But I had to ask myself a question, what was I doing wrong? And if you've been around here, you probably know a lot of the things that I do wrong. But uh, through some searching, some evaluation, some paying attention to some of the things that weren't working in prayer and, and letting God speak to me and through my wife who really lifted me up in prayer during that time and has been uh, faithful at so, so, uh, so often, so long, God started to show me some things. And I want to share with you some of those things that, that God has shown me and about myself. I want to share them because maybe they'll resonate with you or they'll connect with you. Um, I know it will because I know I've seen this in our church. But one of the things that I was doing wrong was I was paying attention to all the wrong things. And it's easy when you're in a church to do this. 
In fact, anytime you have two or more gathered in his name, you will have drama. Especially in the church. And I believe especially in the Northwest. Um, I think, uh, as I've said, you know, we're not, we're not terribly submissive people here in the Northwest. And that comes from our history, I think. It comes from an ideology that, that, is, that is really getting hardwired into how we got… I mean, if you think about the people who moved out here, they were the, they were the fierce independent thinkers. They were willing to take great risks. And that's who we are. That's, that's been ingrained in our thinking, and uh, we bring that fierce independent thinking into the church. And that can create drama. And it's easy to get sucked into it. And I certainly have been sucked into it over the years. And this was the first thing I think God wanted to change, was that I needed to stop spending time with people who were stirring up drama and focusing all my attention on the drama. One of the things he reminded me of was a document I had written before I ever came to work at church here and before I even knew that this was an option that God was leading me here. And one of the things that I wrote in this document about what I was dreaming church would be was that I didn't want to spend so much time responding to drama. I wanted to spend more time focusing on building up disciples. And God reminded me, just brought that back to, to memory probably through the work of prayers and people praying for me and reminded me that I needed to stop spending time with the complainers and the negative thinkers. And I needed to be around people for whom our church was making a, dif- a difference, making an impact. Now, where I sit, where I am, I give so little attention to drama, and I'm actually working harder at even spending less attention and less of my time dealing with drama. And there's a reason for that, and I think it's because very little drama is rooted in legitimate issues that we need to address. For me, when I have stirred up drama, and yes, I confess, I have stirred up drama in the past in some of my churches I've been in. When I've stirred up issues, they've tended to be issues of preference that I've blown out of proportion. Things that, things that I preferred, things that I thought were right or should be, it would be better if we did them this way, and yet they were just issues of my preference that I'd blown out of proportion. They're not real core issues. Sometimes there are core issues that we need to maybe address, but I don't know about you, but if you've ever been around dramatic people, drama has a way of sucking the life out of you. I think that's where I was. I think the life had been sucked out of me by engaging in drama. Now, if you've been around, you also know that I've struggled with cynicism and negativity, that that's been a battle of mine. And and that I've, uh, I've learned that being around cynical and negative people produces something in me, more cynicism and more negativity. <laughs> I don't know if you have realized that, but uh, we, we tend to be who we spend, the time, spend time with. But it was actually through science and, and studying how our brains work that God has really started to show me just how bad of a thing this is, that, 
that most people, this is, these, these are from, this is from research, that most people complain about once a minute. Did you know that? Most people complain about once a minute. It feels good in the moment, but it actually affects our brains negatively, and not just our brains, but our bodies. Here are a few things. For one, our brains work hard to be efficient, and when we do something repeatedly, like complaining, our neurons build pathways to share information faster. So when we're being negative and complaining, our brains are actually working to be more efficient at being negative. So repeated complaining literally rewires our brains to make us more efficient at it. Over time, complaining becomes our default behavior. And I've been around so many people that this is just how, our brains are, how their brains are wired. But not only does complaining damage our brains, complaining causes our bodies to release cortisol, which puts us into what we call fight-or-flight mode, stealing oxygen and energy from every system to prepare us to survive whatever's coming. This impairs our immune system, makes us susceptible to high cholesterol, diabetes or diabetes. What's the guy that always said diabetes? Can't remember his name. But uh, heart disease and obesity, among other things. And it makes our brains more vulnerable to strokes. All this from just being complaining and negative. And here's a, a quote that I want to share with you, that being around negative people actually makes us more negative. I know this kind of feels like a downer, but I'm going somewhere with it. <laughs> this is a quote. It says, when we see someone experiencing an emotion, be it anger, sadness, happiness, etc., our brain tries out or auditions that same emotion to imagine, to help us imagine what the other person is going through. And it does this by attempting to fire the same synapses, synapses in our own brains so that we can attempt to relate to the emotion that we're observing. This is basically empathy. It's also how we get the mob mentality. It's our shared bliss at music festivals. We certainly experience this here when we're gathered on a Sunday morning. But it's also... He says, you're night at the bar with your friends who love, love, love to constantly complain. Maybe it's not the bar for you, but you know where that is. The takeaway lesson, he says, is if you want to strengthen your capacity for positivity and weaken your reflex for gloom, and this is a, a secular scientist writing this, he says, surround yourself with happy people who rewire your brain towards love. Rewire your brain towards love. So I was naturally, and a lot of us are naturally, drawn towards kind of cynical, negative thinking, and it actually releases chemicals in our brain that, that get us to do it over and over and over again. And, but it was God who brought this to my attention that I needed to stop allowing negative and cynical people to influence my life. as well as making sure that I'm not taking in a lot of negative input from other sources like Facebook and the media and the news. We've talked about that in the past. And I wanted to share this with you because this one decision has made such a huge difference in my life. 
We often feel like when God wants to change our lives that, 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 that God just kind of needs to come in and just do this big radical procedure. I mean, like a, like a heart transplant, a full-on just go in and take the old one out and bring the new one in, which is what He does when we come to faith in Him. But, but there's one decision which doesn't really sound that monumental when I'm explaining it to you has affected my life so drastically in the last two and a half years. And I wanted to share with you because I hope that in hearing, you know, just making one small, even smaller than this, right decision for the right reasons going in the right direction can have a tremendous impact on how we live our lives. And so God had been dealing with me on my negativity, on my cynicism, on my on my propensity towards doom and gloom thinking, which had been a pretty active part of our church and our church dialogue for the first two or two and a half years that I was here. But then once God started confronting me on these issues, I started to notice something. I noticed that some of my shortcomings had become hardwired into our identity as a church. And that, unfortunately, our church had assumed the identity of its pastor. And that some of our key characteristics in the church were cynicism, negativity, and complaining. Our church had become, in many ways, what I was. And we had also seemed to attract that kind of people to our church. Now, if you're here, please don't get offended at what I'm saying. This is, this is not the end of the story. But just like negativity puts our bodies, our physical bodies, into survival mode, I think negativity had put our church into survival mode. We were just trying to stay open. We were fighting to exist. But when God showed this to me, it kind of started us on a journey as a church where we've been literally working to rewire how we think for the last two years. And it's a difficult journey, I'm going to be honest. It's been a challenging journey. And some of the things I said, I feel like I've said a thousand times, and yet I still don't know how many of us get them. But we've gone through lots of series talking about this, about being good trees. Remember we talked about that uh, uh, quite a while ago, the first Good Trees series that we went through, and we talked about having the right mindset. We need to have the right way of thinking. We need to be the kind of people whose hearts are so full of God's love, joy, and peace that it overflows out of our lives onto those around us. And we did our first overflow series over a year ago, and that's our vision for this year, talking about the overflow, that we want God to overflow out of our lives. So we've been on a journey together, hopefully together, or trying to lead us on this journey of, of letting God's love start to overflow out of us instead of that cynical, negative, drama-based thing that our world is so comfortable with and at ease with. But as I said, it's been challenging, and, and in fact, I will tell you that being a senior pastor is the hardest job that I've ever had in my life. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, by far. I've shared some of the struggle with you. For one, everyone has an opinion of how I should be doing my job. And I they like to give me performance reviews based on those opinions all the time. 
People have left our church, which is, which is literally gut-wrenching for me. But some of them have left for what I perceive are some of the smallest insignificant reasons. Some have left because of things that I've said, whether in a meeting or in a sermon, maybe even misinterpreted. Others have misinterpreted my intentions and in, in saying or doing things, and others just wanted something new, and you'll see it probably if you're here through this next spring. Spring tends to roll around, and we get the itch for doing something new, and we have a few people that decide it's just time to go find a new church, and you'll probably experience that next spring. It's happened to us the last several springs. But the hardest part of my job is, is my perspective. The hardest part of what I do is being able to see what I see. I've been here five and a half years, and one of the hardest things that I see is people who are missing out on God's best, who are stuck in repetitive loops, repetitive cycles, dealing with the same things. And knowing that, if I could just help them put God first in their lives and, and live life by God's priorities, then I'd be able to help them make progress in this, and it would make all the difference, and yet we get stuck in the same loops. But at the same time, the last couple of years have shown me that being a senior pastor is also very rewarding. When someone gets it, when someone's life changes, when someone starts to thrive in all areas of their lives because they have put God first and they're living by God's principles and living in active relationship with God on an ongoing basis, it literally changes our entire lives and how, how we function on a day-in, day-out basis. It's, it's incredibly rewarding to see somebody go from death to life which is what we get to celebrate next Sunday. It's, it's incredibly rewarding to do what God has given us to do, to see God assembling a body here at this church for His higher purposes, not for my agenda, not for my dreams and desires, but for what He wants to accomplish, and we've seen that happening over the course of this summer. It's very rewarding. But you might be asking, okay, okay, Nice story. Thanks for sharing that. What's the point? We didn't come here to listen to you tell your story about your life, your sob story. We want to know what's the point. And maybe you don't want to know the point. Maybe you would rather me tell stories, and I'll see what I can do about that. But my point in sharing all of this is God has changed my, uh, my job description since being here. My job is not to grow a big church. I don't want you to hear that in a negative way. I don't want you to hear that I'm being negative to those who grow big churches. I think God does a lot of great, th great things through those churches. But that's not my primary goal. My primary purpose is not to try to attract thousands and thousands of people to our church. It was when I first started here. We talked about that. But my aim now, I think God has brought this to me and shown it to me, is, is to help you grow up in Christ. I want to help everyone who is here, everyone who calls 6-8 Church, grow up into Christ. To, to know what it means to walk with Christ daily. To know what it means to have Christ in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's a transformative idea if we can learn to grasp it. 
And I believe that if we're all growing up in Christ together, that everything else will take care of itself, that, that uh, as we're growing up in Christ, who is the head of this church, I'm not the head of this church, but growing up into Christ, who is the head, that's what Scripture teaches, th- then all of the other stuff will take care of itself. As we're living these lives that have been transformed by the power and the life of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all the other things that we were worried about and trying to do and force will happen because we are being like Christ. And the desire of my heart is to see each and every one of us here, every single person, no one left out, grow up in Christ. What I want to see is for all of us to take steps every single day, not every single Sunday, not every single week that we're here at church, but every single day that move us closer to the likeness of Christ and further from our likeness to Adam. That is further from what we were born like into what God wants to resurrect us into. And for me, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to help all of us here grow up in Christ. And in fact, I have such a deep desire for all of us to be set free from the yoke of slavery that we were born into, that we can experience this peace that can only be found by receiving the yoke of Christ. But I'm willing to stake everything on it. I'm willing to, to make this my sole pursuit. So maybe you'll help me. Maybe that helps some of you think, oh, how, how can I help? I want to help. How can I help? And I appreciate that. But to do that, I need to, I think, address a couple of things. I know I've made some bold statements from the stage before, and I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm trying to get our attention in the right place so that we're focused on Jesus. And I think we've gotten off track and we've allowed culture to tell us what to think about the church or Jesus, and we need to fix some of those things. One of them actually learned from Kenan, who was our youth pastor for a while, and it's been a statement that a lot of us have used, and I think it has great truth to it. And I've got a spot for you to write this on your notes. It's going to be up on the screen. The first thing that I need to address is that I can't want it bad enough for you. I can't want you to want God bad enough for you to want God. I deeply want it. I want you to understand I have just a deep, burning desire and passion for everyone in here to have a drive, to want to know God, to want to walk with Christ. But my desire for you, for us, will never be enough to get you to walk with Christ. Can never rely on my desire for you. And how our typical American church structure depends on my passion and my desire for you to come on a Sunday and get me to kind of, kind of, power us up enough and charge us up enough and inspire us up enough so that we can maybe get through a couple of days in the week ahead. But it's just not working, and I don't think it can work. The Scripture teaches actually the opposite. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
Not your pastor's heart, not your parent's heart, not your spouse's heart, not your kid's heart. When you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Maybe the reason we're not satisfied in our walk with Jesus is because we're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We have something else going on. And then Revelation chapter 3, powerful, powerful words of Jesus to the church. It says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, or neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. <laughs> so, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold from me. Buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and, and get from me the white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and, and get from me salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. And this is, the, this is the very next phrase that he says. I, I, didn't, I didn't put a couple verses together. This is, this is the content of the letter as it appears in Revelation. It says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and meet with that person and they with me. Isn't it interesting, the picture that Jesus gives us that he wants us to remember is what we've been talking about, what the early church celebrated of eating together. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, listen to this promise. It's ought to just blow your mind. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. How many of you have sat down on a king's throne before? That's the promise. So I think for some of us, we might be stuck there. Some of us, we might be stuck in this spot where a lot of Jesus' listeners were stuck and where a lot of the early church ended up being stuck is that we're yoked to religion. Remember this picture, yoked. Jesus said he wants us to carry to be in his yoke. No other yoke. Yoked to religion. That's what we see in what Jesus was talking about in the passage we started off today. We also see this as a theme through the New Testament. Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The slavery that Paul was talking about was religion. It was about living in accordance with the Old Testament law as the means to have access to God. That was what Paul was talking about. And he says, don't be subject to that yoke. Acts chapter 15, verse 10. This is uh, right at the beginning of the church. And Peter is the one talking here. And he says, Now then, 
Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? They were talking about circumcision and that, that a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the Jews who had come to Christ thought that the Gentiles coming to Christ needed to be circumcised in order to be in the church. I wish I could go into great detail on that, but we'll save that for another day. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of, of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. We're yoked to religion. We're yoked to thinking we can earn our status with God. Religion is my attempt to earn my status with God. It's my attempt to try to prove that I can get to God on my own. And if I do these things, I will be able to prove to God that I was good enough on my own and that I didn't need Him. Do you see the problem? The problem is religion is rebellion against God. Religion is saying, your way wasn't good enough. I need to do my own way. We're yoked to religion. We're yoked to religion, which is a sin. And I don't know how often we've talked about this, but, but religion is a sin that we need to repent of just as much as other sins. That we need to repent of our religion and attempts at self-righteousness. We need an entirely new way of thinking. And we need God to give us a new way of thinking that changes the way that we live our lives. By the way, I've been here. I was certainly here when I was starting off in ministry. If you think that you know it all and have it all figured out, probably need to repent. So I have a question for you. I'm going to ask us several questions as we move towards the end. Are you yoked to religion? My first question was that I skipped over, and I apologize about desire. What is the greatest desire of your life? right now? What do you want more than anything? What's the greatest desire of your life right now? What do you want more than anything? My second questions are, set of questions, are you yoked to religion? Are you trying to earn God's approval? Are you trying to prove that you're good enough on your own? The third thing I think we need to address is that we're also, we also find ourselves yoked to the world, which is also addressed in Scripture. Yoked to the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, you need to get the context here because he's not saying that we don't have, we don't, we don't interact with unbelievers. That's not at all what Paul is saying. In fact, he makes that point. He's talking about something different. He says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Have you thought about that? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or some of your trans translations will say Belier, which I like, because Belial is, is a, a reference to Satan, a name for Satan, so Belier is just a perfect name. What harmony is, is there between Christ and Satan? 
What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is, is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. There's so much there about the temple of the living God that I don't have time to get into, but I'm really excited about uh, sharing with you at some point in time. But some of us are being pulled around by the ways of the world. We're being discipled by the world. And we've got ourselves in a yoke with the world. You see what happens when you get yoked up with something is it becomes really difficult to go a different direction. This might seem obvious, but I want to state the obvious just for our purposes this morning. If there's a big horse here, and I'm here, and this big workhorse decides it wants to go that way, but I need to go this way, which direction do you think we're going to go? This way, right? I mean, I guess maybe if, if I know the horse and I can maybe kind of lure the horse with some apples and some carrots or something, I might be able to get the horse to go this direction. But if the horse has determined that it's, if it gets spooked and is going to run off in one direction, I have no choice but to go where the horse wants to go. Right? Some of us are yoked up with the world and we're in such relationship with the world that we are being pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled by the world and our desire. See, that's why it can't just be desire. We, a lot of us have the desire, like I said, but, but we're, we're yoked up with the world in such a way or we're yoked up with religion in such a way that, that all of our attempts, even though we see God wants us to go this way, we're still yoked up with the world and it's keeping us from going where God wants us to go. So, question, are you trying to ride two horses with one saddle? Are you trying to find balance between light and darkness? Are you asking this question, how much darkness can I embrace but still be in the light? What fellowship does light have with darkness? talked about this. We know light just wins, right? There is no darkness and light. It's impossible. When the light is on, there is just light. Next week, we're going to start a series on lies. I know we're going to get back into Luke soon, but I feel really uh, kind of pressing on me that we need to address some of the lies that we didn't get to cover uh, earlier. And so, we're going to be talking about this, light and darkness and shadows. But a simple question, and when we're asking, how much darkness can I embrace but still be in the light that I would have? Where is your focus? When we're focusing on how much darkness can we embrace, where is the focus? On the light or the darkness? I've said my aim as your pastor is to help you grow up in Christ. One of the things I do have to do from time to time is to correct some of our broken thinking. And I trust that God puts people in my life and uses you to correct some of my broken thinking because I don't have it all figured out. But Jesus said here that those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. If we could get an understanding of that truth, 
that when Jesus rebukes us and disciplines us, when He's correcting our broken, fallen thinking, it's because He loves us, not because He's judging us. Too often, we interpret God's rebuke and discipline as judgment, and God is not judging us when He rebukes us and disciplines us. He is loving us. A good example is this yoke. Let's say we're yoked up with Christ like we want to be. Here is Christ. It's not going to stay. And here's me over here. And Christ is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those who are in me will never know darkness at all. Walk with me, he says. That's what what Jesus says. Come walk with me. Follow me. And so Jesus takes off this way. And he's walking this way. But I'm over here, and I'm like, ooh, that looks cool. And I find myself doing this, right? But when when you're partnered up with somebody who's much stronger than you, then they're just going to go the direction that you need to go. And what Jesus does through discipline and rebuke is basically, I'm being distracted by all these things over here, and my eyes are turned over here. And because Jesus loves me and wants to get me going in the right direction, which is His direction, it's the only direction that's the right direction, is God's direction. What He does is is, is he, He says, hey, don't look over there. Just turns my head towards Him. Follow me. That's what, that's what Jesus' love does because He loves us. He rebukes us and disciplines us. It's, hey, don't look at that. Look at me. You're not yoked up with that. You're yoked up with me. So, so stop putting your attention on that and put your attention on me because I'm going the direction you need to go. Jesus disciplines us and rebukes us because He loves us. Not because I'm unloved, but because I'm so deeply loved that He's not willing to let me continue on in things that are destroying me, but He wants to bring me into His truth and His grace and His life that He has for me. And so when you hear me saying some of these things, it's because I want want to call us all, myself included, into God's best. And sometimes what we need to do is Hey, don't look at that. Don't look over there. That's, that's, that's the lie. That, that's not what you need to pay attention to. Look at me. A couple final thoughts and we're closing. You're not going to become a disciple by accident, just so you know. It's a lie we believe in our culture that, oh, God's just going to be able to install this thing called discipleship onto the hard drive of my life, and I'm going to be good. Just one Neo instance, and I'm, you know, like, uh, what's that movie called? Matrix. Matrix. I know Kung Fu. It's like, I know how to be a disciple. Just doesn't work that way. It's not going to happen by accident. If you're just waiting for it to happen to you, you're going to be waiting for a long time. God has given us everything we need for life and righteousness, and it's all found in Christ Jesus, but the pursuit of that is a lifetime pursuit. 
So if we're waiting for something, if you're waiting for an invitation, consider this your invitation. But I have a question for you. If you're just feeling like, oh, I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just not there yet, I'm just not quite ready yet, then I ask this, what's it going to take for you to start? How much motivation do you need? How much inspiration do you need? How much truth do you need? How many reasons do you need? Because what I know is as long as we're waiting for something, we'll always be waiting for something. Jesus is everything we need, and all we need is to turn to Him. But if you're like, I'm serious, what do you need? And if you need something, I'm happy to try to help you with that. What's it going to take for you to start? What if the reason the church never works for us is because we've been waiting for someone else to do for us what only we can do for ourselves? We're waiting for someone else to do for us what we can only do for ourselves, which is believe. That one thing is belief. No one else can believe for you. You have to believe. You have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You have to believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross paid the debt that you owed God for your sins. You have to believe that. I can't just share it with you and hope that you get it. You have to believe that, not just in your mind, but in your heart, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and he paid the ransom to set you free from sin, hell, and death. And that's not all that you believe. You don't just believe in what Jesus did on the cross, but you believe that he rose from the dead, and that his resurrection is my resurrection, that, that when he he was buried, I was buried, and that when he came back to life, I came back to life. This is what, what our work is as followers of Jesus Christ, is believing in these things, and that, that I believe that then he sent the Holy Spirit, which is, by the way, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the Holy Spirit in you. The presence, the Spirit of Christ is in you. That is the hope of glory, and the Spirit is in us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in the future kingdom of God, which is to come. My job is to believe in that, and no one can do that for or anyone else in this room except for you? Do you believe? And when we believe, things change, right? When you really believe in something, you change. Let me give you a quick example. If you really believe that Apple makes the best computers, but you only ever buy Windows computers, you don't really believe that Apple makes the best computer. Why? Because when you believe something, you're willing to sacrifice everything else to get the one thing you need to believe, even if that means you have to take out a second mortgage to buy this computer, which is often the case, you will do that because you believe. I exaggerate. Kind of. <laughs> when you believe, you change. Matthew 13, 44 and 45, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, pay attention. What is the kingdom of heaven like? If you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, the one that we're supposed to be praying will come here on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a person found and hid. And then because of joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like, pay attention, what is the kingdom of heaven like? Kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. And when he found a pearl of great value, he went out and sold everything he had and bought it. 
I think the reason some of us struggle to really embrace God's best for our lives is that we kind of want to just sell what's required and, and get, get more from God than we're giving, but the only way to really experience God is to give everything. So back to that question, what do you want the most in life? What's the thing that you want more than anything? What's that thing that, that you daydream about? What's the thing that you dream about all day long? What's the thing that keeps you awake at night? Because you're dreaming about doing it or accomplishing it or getting it or having it. What's the thing you want most in life? Is it Jesus? If not, we're in trouble. For me right now, the thing that's driving me here as your pastor is that I want so badly for all of us to grow up in Christ. I want to help every one of us in this room realize the unrealized potential of Christ in you. I don't think we have even begun to understand. We have not even begun to skim the surface of what the potential of Christ in us really means and what it would look like if we lived this way. We, we just haven't even gotten there yet. In, in Him, in Christ, in Him we live and move and have our being. That is where life is found. That in Him is fullness of life. When our life feels empty, it's because we're not in Christ. In Him is the fullness of life. In Him is light. There is no darkness at all. In Him is love, life, hope, and peace. This is what it means to be in Christ. I want to help you with that. I want to, I want to serve you in this way. So I'm asking you a question. How can I help yoke you to Christ? How can I help yoke you to Christ? I put up a couple of thoughts online on Workplace this week, and I asked this question, and hopefully some of you thought about it and came with it. What is the one thing that you want to grow in as you walk humbly with God for the next 90 days? From September 9th to December 9th, what's the one thing you want to grow in as you walk humbly with God for the next 90 days? Not the next year, not the next five years, just the next 90 days. You got a three-by-five card this morning. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and start playing. And I ask that you pull that card out. I don't know what it's going to look like. This feels crazy and insane to me to make this offer. But what I'm offering is that anyone who writes something down on that card, anyone who writes something down that says, I want to grow in this, for the next 90 days. I'll find a way to help you, to encourage you, to work with you. I'll find a way to, to do whatever it takes to help you grow up in that. I'm not going to require it of everyone. I'm not going to require everyone to fill out a card this morning. If you don't want to fill out a card, don't fill out a card. There's no pressure. What I want is for the people who have a desire the people who are just longing to have more of Christ in their lives. And I put up this poll that asks, you know, are you where you wanted to be, essentially? And the most overwhelming response was, I've made progress, but not as much as I'd like. I just want to help. I want to help you in that. I want to help you make progress for the next 90 days. I believe if we just focused on this, whatever group comes forward, whatever, whoever fills out a card, if it's just one or two or three, 
that God will become so real for us in the span of a 90-day period that, that it will just be revolutionary. And I want this to just become a regular habit for us as we, as we move into the future of what God has for us as a church. Looking at these periods of devotion, kind of intense focus on Christ. So I want to help you, and I'm here to serve you. I want to help you grow up in Christ. So I'm going to ask the band to uh, play a little bit. Maybe give us a, a verse or a verse in a chorus to, to write if you want to write. So before you have to sing, before you have to do anything, if you have something that you want to grow in as you walk humbly with God for the next 90 days, I'd ask you to write that down on that card. And then I'm going to stand up here during this song before we take communion. And I'm going to ask you to bring it to me. I might feel like a lot. But I need, you to, I need you to step out a little bit. I need to, I need to see that there's, there's enough of a desire that I'm willing to kind of go out and let people see that I'm, I'm doing this. And if nobody comes, I'm not embarrassed. If nobody wants to do it, then, then there's nothing to be judged or critiqued or condemned. But if you feel like, I just, I've just wanted to know Christ more, I've wanted to experience more of Christ more in my life, and I would like to, I'd like to partner with others in that pursuit for the next 90 days, then just write what, what it is. Come up and give it to me. I won't share it with anyone until we figure out a way to best do it, and I'll, I'll discuss those options with you before we do anything else. So... Thank you.